0: If you have your bibles go ahead and turn with me to Matthew's gospel. The title of our message this Sunday is Palm Sunday 2016. What a clever title for a message I came up with. That contrasts it from contrasts contrast it from Palm Sunday 2015, right? Matthew chapter 21. As you are going there, I will pray. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time of year. We have an opportunity, Lord, to be your spokespeople. Not only are we to be salt and light, but Lord, you've directed us and called us to be your mouthpiece as well. And so, Lord, I pray that we would open our mouths for you, that we would point others to the source of life, to where healing, restoration, reconciliation, and just the wonder of salvation can come. And so, Father, I pray that you give us a boldness to step out in faith and trust that you will be with us. Bless our time as we have it in your word, Lord. Open up our eyes, open up our ears as we give you this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So today is Palm Sunday, and I ask the question, what are you willing to suffer for? It's a rhetorical question, In the first service we can answer it because we're sitting down and there's just a handful of people, and we can go around and kind of interact a little more. And so think about that question as we think about answers to what I'm willing to suffer for. Many times people will say that they're willing to suffer for goals that they have set in life or um, willing to suffer for their family and friends, for sure, their loved ones. And so as you think about the passion and the passion of the Christ and what this week represents, this begins Passion Week or Holy Week, but the passion it's different than an emotion. It's different than a feeling that Jesus had. The word passion comes from the late Latin, and it mean, uh, that word is passionem. I guess I could say that more Latin sounding, but passionem. And it's defined as suffering and enduring. So the passion of the Christ, this passion week, this last, from this Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, and all of the days in between, is the passion of the Christ, what Jesus did and what he suffered for and what he endured. And definitely passionate about. Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, depicts Friday, but the last 12 hours leading up to the, resurrection, or the crucifixion. And so it shows the trials and the beatings and everything that took place, the scourging. Um, And so that was the passion of the Christ. He picked that section to be able to do that. So if we're looking at Palm Sunday, that's what we're going to look at, the triumphal entry as Jesus comes into uh, Jerusalem riding on a donkey, prophesied in the Old Testament. If we're starting there on Sunday, we have Palm Sunday. And then there's a few other things that took place. Let me read you some of them. Passion Week. Contained several memorable memorable events. Jesus cleansed the temple for the second time. Then disputed with the Pharisees regarding his authority. Then he gave his Olivet Discourse on the end times. And taught many things including the signs of his second coming. Jesus ate his last supper with his disciples in the upper room. Then he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray as he waited for his hour to come. It was... Here that Jesus, having been betrayed by Judas, was arrested and taken to several sham trials before the chief priests, Pontius Pilate and Herod. And if you were to count the trials that Jesus went through, they're six to seven. If you include the multitude shouting out, crucify him, crucify him, then that would be the seventh. And so Jesus would go through all of this. Following the trials, Jesus was scourged at the hands of the Roman soldiers then was forced to carry his own instrument of execution, the cross, through the streets of Jerusalem along what is known as the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows. Jesus was then crucified at Golgotha on the day before the Sabbath, was buried and remained in the tomb until Sunday, the day after the Sabbath, then gloriously resurrected. And so all of those things include the Passion Week, the Passion Week of the Christ, the things that Jesus was willing to go through, suffer, and endure. So we're in Matthew 21. We're going to read about this. Let's look at uh, verses 1 through 21. And then um, all four Gospels mention the triumphal entry. So they mention Palm Sunday and and this event. We're going to look at Matthew's account, a portion of Luke, and John's account of the triumphal entry. So this is Matthew 21, starting at verse 1. The Bible says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees. And spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitude said, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. And so within Matthew's account, we see that Jesus is preparing for this Coming into Jerusalem, he tells two unnamed disciples to go and to find this donkey with her baby, the colt, a fold. And so it's not just one donkey, it's the mommy and the baby, and it's one who has never been ridden, is how he would come riding in on a donkey, showing humility and meekness, power under control. Jesus could have came in on a steed, a gigantic horse, but it just screams of just this suffering Messiah, this one who would come in, who wouldn't have to flex his muscles. His muscles would be flexed as he died on the cross carrying the sins of the world. And so they would go exactly and find this donkey and this baby donkey with the mommy donkey, and it's exactly as Jesus tells them, there they are, they unloose them and they're ready to just roll. And in one of the other gospels, it tells us that they do ask, uh, what are you doing with my donkey? Not like that, but that's how I picture it because it's like, and they say the Lord has need of them. And either they were disciples of the Lord or they understood what it meant and they let him go. And so Jesus would come riding in. Three significant things that we see in this first section that we're looking at. Jesus' mode of transportation was predicted, what the crowd said was predicted, and the very day that it would happen would be predicted. And we might think that that's no big deal, but the prophecies that were fulfilled in Jesus are an incredible hope for us as Christians that God knows what He's talking about. He's able to tell us specific things hundreds of years before they come to pass so that when we see them and when we read them, our faith can be ignited and we can understand, wow, God, God really knows what he's talking about. Not only does he know the past, but he knows the future, and he's telling us these things. So the first one, Jesus' mode of transportation, as we saw the donkey, was prophesied in Zechariah nine. Let me read it to you. Zechariah 9.9 9 specifically reads, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. That's pretty interesting, huh? That it's telling us he would be on a baby donkey. And it would mention both of them, the mom and the baby donkey. And that's how Jesus would be coming in, riding into Jerusalem. Number two, the crowd said what was predicted. This is found in the psalm that we read this morning in our time of responsive reading. Psalm 118. I'll read you verses 24 and 25. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. That save now is Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna is what they were crying out, quoting from this psalm, taking this psalm out of its context, out of its historical meaning and saying, whoa, this is a messianic prophetic psalm. And here it is right before our eyes. Jesus, save now. That's significant because in the first century, the understanding of the religious community and even the disciples of Jesus was that Jesus or the Messiah would come in and immediately set up his kingdom. And they didn't understand that the Messiah would have two advents, two comings, the first coming and the second coming of the Messiah. The third prophecy was the very day it happened was predicted. The scripture is found in Daniel chapter 9. I'll read it to you, verse 25. And the Bible says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the prince there shall be 7 weeks and 62 weeks the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times so daniel is in babylonian captivity at the time they would be in babylonian captivity for 70 years He recognizes, hey, we're almost at the end of this Babylonian captivity. We're almost at the 70 years. And he prays. He prays on behalf of his nation. And he falls to his knees and he cries out and he says, God, show me. Show me what you have in store for my people, for the nation of Israel. And he just breaks through in prayer and he doesn't leave until God comes and gives him one of the greatest prophecies in the Old Testament. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26, and 27. And it would give the history of the nation of Israel. And right here, it's telling us that there's going to be a decree that goes out to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. When that decree goes forth, start counting. A specific number of years are going to take place, and then the Messiah will come in, but he will be cut off. Not for himself but for the nations. Let me read you what Pastor Chuck Smith has in his study Bible as it relates to this verse specifically. He says, The word for weeks is actually sevens and refers to seven lengths of time, whether days, weeks, or years. Sir Robert Anderson, in his book, The Coming Prince, calculated 483 years, 69 times seven. From that date March 14th, 445 BC. So the decree went out on that specific date, March 14th, 445 BC. Using the 360-day 360 360-day 360 Babylonian calendar which gives you 173,880 days, this calculates to April 6, 32 AD, precisely the day Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That's like my mind has just been blown. It's crazy. It's crazy to know that God gave them 173,000 plus days before it would happen, the specific day that the Messiah would come into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. Why is that significant? Turn with me to Luke's gospel chapter 19 luke chapter 19 so our second account of the triumphal entry that we're going to look at is found here in Luke chapter 19 same account same story that Jesus is coming riding in on a donkey it starts at verse 28 but we're going to pick it up at verse 37 So this is Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 37. The Bible says, Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, verse 37, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. As he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave you and one they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Because of a failure to understand what was clearly said in the scriptures, the nation of Israel would go through the most difficult time that they've ever seen in the history of the world. 2,000 years of blindness. The Bible says in Romans chapter 9, that the Jews have been given a partial hardening. Their eyes are veiled from seeing the truth because they didn't recognize this day. They would be the ones that would have these trumped up charges against their own Messiah. They didn't want what Jesus had to offer because they weren't aware of what the scripture said as it related to this specific day. And they would end up crucifying the very Messiah that was promised to them. And I think for us, it's very important that we recognize that God has things to tell us. God has things to say in his word that we would be aware of the sign of the times in which we're living in. That it would cause us to look up for our redemption draws near when we see these things happening. So, in this section of scripture, as Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, what he's referring to at the end there, verses 43 and 44, is the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Historically, we know that that took place in 70 AD. Not one stone in the temple was left on the other. The emperor Titus would come in, his army, they would invade the city, and they were told, don't touch the temple, don't place fire to the temple. A lot of gold in the temple. They wanted the gold. And so an arrow was shot, goes in, and all of the gold melted and it went between the cracks and crevices of the temple. Stone by stone, they had to remove it and scrape it off so that they can secure the gold. Jesus' prophecy would come to take place. Not one stone was left. In verse 42, he said, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I don't want to so insist on my will that I lose sight of what God has in store for me. And so we need to be very careful that we understand that God is doing something and that that which God is doing, we want to be in line with, we want to participate with, we want to cooperate with. We don't want to find, find ourselves fighting against God. God loves us. God has a plan for us. But God's not on your timeline. He's on His timeline. God's will will be done. God rules in the kingdom of men. In the book of Daniel, it says that He gives it to the lowest of men. So we need to walk in humility, understanding that God has a will. I believe part of Judas Iscariot's problem, if you study the Bible, you come to find out that he insisted on His will. He insisted... As others in first century A.D., their understanding of the Messiah coming was to set up a kingdom immediately on earth. And that when that Messiah would come, hey, maybe if I jockey position and kind of, you know, do this right, maybe I can rule with him in his kingdom. Remember the two disciples and the mom that would come to them and to Jesus and say, Jesus, can uh, maybe my two sons sit at your, one at your right hand, one at your left, when you come into your kingdom... They thought that the Messiah would immediately set up his kingdom in the first century. And so I think Judas Iscariot, having that, could not understand and accept the will of God. And he would become the son of perdition. He would betray Jesus. 30 pieces of silver. Moving on, go ahead and turn with me to John's gospel. And we'll look at our last account of the triumphal entry. John chapter 12. John's Gospel, chapter 12. And we'll see this a little further, what I'm talking about as it relates to the disciples. So, John's Gospel, chapter 12, we're going to read verses 12 through 19. And again, this is John's account of the triumphal entry. Each gospel writer is giving us their perspective. And they're writing to a specific audience, so we see little bits and pieces that might be a little different, but nonetheless, we recognize that all of this gives us the full account of the triumphal entry, or Palm Sunday. So this is John's Gospel, chapter 12, starting at verse 12. The next day, a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things were written about him, and that they had done these things to him. Stop there, we'll come back and we'll finish it, but... His disciples did not understand these things at first. It wouldn't be until Jesus is glorified that these things would begin to resonate and they're able to put the pieces of the puzzle together, connect the dots, if you will. And so what does that speak to us? Again, we need to be be careful, insisting on our own will. We need to be careful having the limited perspective that we have. And ultimately, we need to walk by faith. We need to understand that God knows what he's doing. And you might look at things in your life, and you might look at seasons in your life, and you might think God was absent in that season. Nothing could be further from the truth. God knows. He knows what's going on. He has a will for your life. What is that will according to Romans chapter 12, verse 2? It's good it's acceptable. It's perfect. He's not wishing that to bum you out, to rip you off, to hurt you. And so the disciples wouldn't understand until after. Remember John chapter 6? Jesus feeds the multitude, the 5,000. And then all of a sudden, people are coming out of the woodworks. So they're like, dang, biscuits and fish sticks, free lunch, program. Yeah, we're down with Jesus. This is a little bit of all right. All right. You know what I'm saying? And so all of these people, he gets fair weather followers. All of these people are following Jesus. Now, if it were me or a religious leader, what would we do? We'd be like, dang, we're blowing up, blowing up. Let's build bigger buildings, right? Let's, the multitudes are coming out, too. There's more money. This is status. We get a TV deal. Maybe we get on the radio. Woo! What does Jesus do? The very opposite. Thin them out. Let's thin the crowds out. People are following me for the wrong reasons. And so what does Jesus do in John chapter 6? He declares to the multitudes, unless you eat of my flesh, unless you drink of my blood, you have no part in me. People are looking at that and they're like, cannibalism? Eat of his flesh, drink of his blood? Biscuits and fish sticks were cool, but nah, I'm not... mm." and it says in john chapter 6 verse 66 john 6:66 6, 6, 6, and many of his disciples disciples followed him no longer they left they bounced jesus turns to the 12 and he says do you want to go as well peter says lord to whom shall we go you alone have the words of eternal life we've come to believe that you are the christ the messiah we're not going anywhere. We don't understand the eating of your flesh. We don't understand the drinking of your blood. But Lord, you alone have the words of eternal life. We're not going anywhere. And our faith is going to be tested. There's going to be times when we just don't understand. We're here inside of time and space. God is outside of time and space. And so in that there's going to be times in our lives where we look and we say, I don't quite understand this. What do we do in those moments? We walk by faith. Simple as that. We have to walk by faith. We have to know and trust that God loves us. He's demonstrated that love on the cross. He's already proven that he loves us. He's going to continue to love us. He's going to get us through these difficult things. And they might not, they might not iron out the way we want them to, But we have to trust that God knows what He's doing. And He's doing something deep in our hearts in those moments. And so the disciples did not understand these things at first. Verse 17 goes on in John chapter 12 to say, Therefore the people who were with Him, when He called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met Him, because they heard that He had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The enemies of God were able to recognize that they couldn't even stop Jesus, but they would try. They would try. In their temporalness, all I got to do is get them rid of this, get rid of them in this temporal, and we will win, right? No. No. They recognized that they couldn't stop him, but they were going to try anyways. Why do we fight God? Who can fight God and win? Nobody. Don't resist God. Don't fight God. Let God do what he's going to do. Don't be like these Pharisees right here who recognize, look, the whole world's going after him. We've failed. You are accomplishing nothing, they said. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 3 that God opens a door that no man can shut. And he shuts a door that no man can open. In Romans chapter 8, the Bible says, for if God is with me, who can be against me? And so you want to not have God line up with your plans, line up with your will. No, no, no. You want to figure out what God is doing and then line up with God. One with God is a majority. Me and God against the world, I win. Woohoo! The whole world lined up against God loses. So we need to be very careful that we're not resisting God, that we're not holding God back, that we're not fighting against God, but that we're lined up with what God wants to do in these last days, In the world. And what does he want to do? He wants to raise you up. He wants to prepare you for what he has prepared for you. So this word, the passion, from the late Latin, passionem, again, defined as suffering and enduring. And if you look at Sunday, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, and then you just go on to Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, no account, no record in the Bible of anything that he did on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, the crucifixion. Saturday, he's in the tomb. Sunday, resurrection. That's the passion of the Christ. That's the passion week, the holy week that we're experiencing, if you will, right now, or reliving, we're going through as we just learn. What was his passion? What was the thing that he endured and suffered? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, the Bible says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him endured the cross. You are his passion. He endured for you. So that you would be with him in heaven, in eternity. You are the passion of the Christ. That's mind-blowing, That's mind-boggling. There were two things why he did this. Number one was you. Number two, he wanted to go home to be with his father. He would endure because he was separated for that season from his father. He wanted to go back to be with the father. So let's not lose sight of that. We are his joy. We are the reason that he did what he did, that he endured this on our behalf. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that you love us. You've demonstrated that love for us. Lord, why do we doubt you? Why do we question? Lord, why do we wonder? I pray, Father, that we would bask in that thought, that we would meditate on that, Lord, that it would resound over and over in our head, that we would just acknowledge, Lord, that we are your joy. You did it to spend eternity with us. And, Lord, I pray that that would move us. I pray that that would cause deep within us, Father, just a gratitude and a desire to glorify and praise you with our lives because of it. Not earning what you've done for us, Lord, just simply responding. And so we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your passion. We thank you for the suffering and what you endured. We just pray, Father, that we would be bold to be able to open our mouth and to proclaim and to share what you've done deep within us through your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen.